Welcome to the Rogue Song Podcast. This is Nate Winters, and I appreciate you coming back for another episode. If this is your first time, um, I discuss a lot of different things, from agriculture to winemaking and various topics. Today we're taking a break from my rants on tilling, um, which is much needed, especially for my mental health. And today I sit down with a good friend of mine by the name of Chef Carl Kraus. Chef Carl and I were introduced to each other about a year, year and a half ago, and since then we've, we've hit it off great. We do a lot of collaborations together as far as wine pairings and dinner menus, so that's been basically our professional relationship is coming up with, with dinners to do winemaker dinners with. We've done probably eight of them together over the course of a year and a half, two years, but this is the first time we've got the chance to sit down together and really dive deep on some of these avenues of discussion. There's a lot of things I didn't touch on that I am saving so that we can do another episode together and really get into the weeds on some aspects. But I tried to touch on some random questions along with some tailored questions, learn a little bit about Carl and where he grew up, and both of our perspectives on food and wine. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a nice refresher to get back on track in the interview world. Um, I like to do these better than just me talking into a microphone for a while, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, Again, all the feedback is more than welcome. Um, This is going to be the longest episode I'm pretty sure that I've done. It's going to span about an hour and a half. The last episode with Joseph that I did was an hour and a half, but I think this will go maybe an hour 45, something like that. Um, So bear with me. There's a couple breaks in between, but uh, if you have a long road trip in front of you or plenty of time on your hands... This is the perfect episode for you. Thanks for taking a, a ride on this journey with me, and I hope you enjoy Chef Carl Kraus. Carl. Yes, sir. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks for having me, man. We have uh, worked together for quite a while now. And this is the first time we've actually got to formally sit down, so I think I'll have some questions for you that I want to know that we haven't talked about before. Yeah, sure. Um, let me know if anything's off limits. So far, we're good. Um, so Carl, uh, we call him Chef Carl at Troon. He does most of our, if not all of our wine dinners that we do um, since COVID has taken over. I think we met Carl at the Oregon Wine Experience Dinner in 2019? Yeah, last year, uh, 2020. It was 2020. Yeah. Okay. It was last year, yeah. Um, so we, we got that out of the way, and we realized his food was actually levels above anything we've ever worked with um, in the past, so we wanted to keep him around. He's been having some other things going on in his life, so we can have him when we're allowed to have him, but things are also changing. We may get into his future, but it looks like we're teaming up a lot more recently, um, which is great for me. I look, I look yeah, forward to too. you in the future. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So... Since we're sitting down officially, let's just start from the beginning. Um, where were you born? Suburbs of Chicago, a little town called Downers Grove. Uh, grew up there, spent all of my first 18 years there. Um, Is this east side, west side? It is south, southwest suburbs. So You lived there till you were 18? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. all your schooling kind of went? Everything, yeah. Same house, grew up. Same house all the same neighborhood, all that stuff. So Both parents? Both parents, yep. They lived in the area too, so you know, Midwest 
born and raised, you know, a couple generations there. Um, but when 18 came around, I was definitely excited to get out for sure. <laughs> What'd you do as a kid? What was like fun things to do in the suburbs oh, of Chicago? Uh, we rode our bikes a lot. Spent a lot of time at uh, the elementary school playground. Um, What'd they have there? Shoot hoops or like tetherball? No, or just, you know, being playing, kids. Yeah, just doing dumb kid stuff, you know, playing tag on bikes and jumping off of bikes and doing all that kind of stuff. A few summers we played with those Estes rockets. You ever play with those? Like the big engines that like shoot them up in the air and they go like 800 feet or whatever depending on how big you it's get. like a little bottle rocket type deal or something no, it's bigger than a bottle rocket like you build a model oh it's like an actual rocket, rocket. Yeah, right, yeah you right. build a model rocket and then my dad had this launch pad that he built as a kid that's hooked up to one of those big batteries you know not like a car battery or anything but i don't know what they're for but they're huge right and you launch them in the air and we did all types of dumb stuff like putting them in gatorade bottles and <laughs> they just fly crazy right because they're not designed to go anywhere so you get hit in the head with a melting Gatorade bottle and it's fun you know but glad to be out of the Midwest for sure I used to take advantage of the school as well there was like the big grass you know the soccer fields and mm-hmm. all that so yeah. we would do the same thing but we didn't have like crazy rockets we just had the, the cheap you know stuff that we could you buy the arts and crafts sports? not as much <laughs> not, not till I was older yeah, you <laughs> um, <clears throat> did you get into trouble that much? Mm-mm. No way, dude. I was a good kid, man. No trouble. So his parents are listening right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know how to use the internet. They don't know what, they don't know what Spotify is, so I'm good. Cool. Um, so, I mean, 18 years there, not a whole lot to get into. Um, what You had both parents. I mean, who cooked in the family more than the other, or did they take turns? Well, or? so my mom did the cooking, or at least attempted to. That's kind of how I kind of got into cooking because my mom was a terrible cook. Um, her mom wasn't a great cook, you know, her mom grew up in, in the, the, the canned era, you know, where it was cool to have canned vegetables and all that sort of stuff, and so that's what she passed along, and that's what my mom inherited as far as cooking skills, and, you know, my grandpa had health issues, so salt was a big, like, no-no, like, salt didn't go in anything, ever, like, in a cookie recipe, like, leave it out, no salt on meat, I remember, dude, my mom used to make pork tenderloin, right? And she'd get a one and a half pound pork tenderloin. It's maybe like an inch and a half thick. Coat it in Jamaican jerk seasoning, like the McCormick's out of the bottle. And then roast it at like 425 degrees for like an hour and a half, dude. It was disgusting. Like just terrible. Couldn't Can you paint an image of what that's like when you take it out? Is, it, is the outside like super like, hard? Like, dude, it's like... Because the tenderloin's similarly shaped to a... Like if you stretched out a football so it wasn't fat, like kind of tapered on the end... So it's like if you took a football and then stretched it out and then tried to jam it all back into itself with nothing inside. Like, it was just so leathery and tough. And, like, as a kid, like, Jamaican jerk's great, but spicy, you know? And so as a kid, it, dude, it was awful. That and cheeseburgers. Dude, cheeseburgers, I remember picking off the cheese of cheeseburgers cheeseburgers were just like grilled unseasoned ground beef terrible did you not like cheese then no i love the no that's what i would eat was the cheese. oh you would so, eat the cheese yeah off and of just it. leave wow. the burger like I, it takes a lot to ruin a burger dude like that's hard and so my mom finally got tired of me complaining about it and one day was just like if you don't like it like you cook and so i started doing it and like we didn't have cable growing up so i watched cooking shows all the time and 
they let me experiment and kind of do whatever I wanted and it was kind of fun and food actually tasted good when you started doing stuff so that's kind of how that's kind of how that started and my my dad's mom my grandma she's an awesome cook and so <clears throat> she taught me a lot as far as cooking um, you know she's never classically trained or anything but her mom grew up in the depression era and like learned those sort of skills like homemade breads and proper proper cooking techniques so grandma grandma knows how to cook and she's wonderful at it so definitely from like the inexperience of my mom's side and the experience of my dad's side it's kind of where I got that from as far as the family aspect goes what did did they make anything that you actually looked forward to growing up like what was a meal that you were like oh yes we're having this tonight um my mom any? or my grandma either or did did you have any well, of those see, my mom did make she did make good lasagna but I mean it was all like canned tomato sauce like noodles and whatever like she assembled lasagna I should say and put it in the oven and it was good you know especially like there's a lot of people out there who you know, I should give my mom credit, dude. She did come home from like a job and like put a meal on the table and all that, but it just just wasn't good, you know. And there's a lot of people who don't get that, and we never really we had a McDonald's every once in a while, you know, fast food, but it was it was a treat. It wasn't like that was a reoccurring thing. Like oh, dinner again. Like here you go. Like there was a home cooked meal on the table most nights of the week, which is something I need to remind myself of. That is something to be happy about, you know. Right. Um, but she did make lasagna. That was what I asked for for my birthdays. Lasagna, you know, enchiladas were always a good one. Um, she did make a good Italian beef, which I found out is really a Chicago thing. They don't really have that outside of Chicago, but it's a it's a sandwich, and it's like uh, take like a pot roast and cook it in like Italian seasonings and lemon juice and beef stock and all the stuff, and you shred it and you put it on a, a French roll with like cheese and you're supposed to put like peppers and what we call jardinere which is like pickled peppers and cauliflower and carrots and stuff um, but what I really like about it is if you order it at a restaurant you can either get it dry wet or dipped that's how you order your sandwich you say I want an Italian beef I want it wet so what they do is they take the, they build the sandwich and they take the whole thing they dunk it in this juice that they've cooked the beef in and like it's disgusting like they roll it up in a paper bag and your paper bag's wet and you hope that it doesn't fall through and hit the table and squish everywhere but gotta eat it with a fork and knife but it is delicious what what is uh that was dipped or is that wet dipped wet is where they take just a little bit and like juice the inside of the bun and you can still kind of hold it and eat it normally but dude when they dip it they dip the whole thing so yeah. kind of like an au jus sauce or yeah something exactly like that. what it is yeah <clears throat> yeah and so uh, yeah the midwest gets dirty like that on their, on their food I know. Sure. I, I'm excited to be able to go to Chicago one day and have pizza. Real pizza, dude. Yeah, yeah. All these other oh, things yeah. that I'm not go, supposed to. When you go, I'll give to. you a list of list of pizza places you got to hit up. Okay. Okay. They're, they're definitely do. We had a pizza place growing up. It's not there anymore. Uncle Pete's, right? They made deep dish, and you didn't order the pizza by like small, medium, or large. You ordered it by the pound, and a small pizza weighed 12 pounds. Oh. And so yeah, so you cut open this pizza and like you've seen deep dish, right? I don't know if you ever had it, but you know what it looks like. And you cut open a piece and like this like flow of like molten lava cheese would just instantly take its spot. And you could eat like one and a half pieces before you like passed out due to like calorie overload. But it was so good. 
so good. It's very different. I haven't had that, but I've had, dare I say, New York pizza. Oh, yeah. No, it's all good. Dude, you can't Pretty have different. bad pizza. It's hard to have bad pizza. That's why I get so upset when, like, people are like, oh, no, that's not real pizza. Or that's not good pizza. It's like, dude, all pizza is delicious. And, like, you can't compare, like, New York and Chicago-style pizza are two different things, right? you got to appreciate them for what it's worth. You can have your opinion. That doesn't make one bad. So this could go on a real big tangent, but I think this is fascinating because it's the same crossover with wine of mm-hmm. what makes a bad pizza or wine, whatever we're talking about, it's, it's subjective on what it's, it's made of. Right. But when you burn a pizza, that's is that technically a flaw, right? Like, that's not what your intent is. Right. So when you find a flaw in wine compared to just a subjective, I don't like this, that's what that reminded me of. Some people just don't like some types of pizza, but that's still what that that chef or cook was going for. It's not flawed. Yeah, it's just not for you. Right. And And so I think that's a great point. I mean, that's across the lines with food, or you get this all the time. Like, I don't like beets, or I don't like, I only like cabs or Chardonnay. It's like people get exposed to certain things, and then aren't willing to be adventurous to trying something else because they've had negative experiences outside of their sort of comfort zone, right? Right. And, you know, a lot with food, but more so with wine, there's this stigma around it that, like, wine is this, you know, you need to, it's, like, fancy and highly educated, or, like, you need to, you can't appreciate wine without knowing about it, and, like, that's not true, I don't think. Like, you know, when I was in culinary school, like, we took the wines class or whatever and I think I forget what the exact verbiage was but it's like some of the best wine out there will cost you $12 you know what I mean like price has nothing to do with it like and and I've heard like really well decorated psalms say that like finding a like there's this this goal of like shooting for price and quality of wine right like you can find a mediocre wine that costs $120 a bottle, or you can find a really good wine that costs $40 a bottle. And, like, that sweet spot, like, looking for the deal f- is, I think, where most educated wine people sit, right? Like, nobody has, very few people have 120 bucks to blow on a bottle of wine, you know, special occasion or whatever. But if you can find a bottle of wine that's awesome for the price, that that's that's, like, the... The, the needle in the haystack. You know, I, I agree, and I feel like that happens easier for people, like I said, with a knowledge and with experience building mm-hmm. to know yeah. you've bought bottles of wine that were this price and that price, and you've had those before, and you say, oh, I, I just had this the other day for 80 bucks, but they're selling it for 47 yeah. I'm going to buy that. Right. So you start to learn where to catch these deals. And when I go out to restaurants, because I work with so many distributors now, I know the real prices, right. and so I'm trying to pick out the deals, right. you know. So, no, I, I, you hit it on the head, for sure. Well, and then there's that reverse sort of thing where, like, you know, people, you know, it's hard for people to spend 20 dollars on a bottle of wine, right? When there's so much out there for 18 sub-15, whatever. And so people gravitate towards that, and they get a varietal, and they don't like it in that lower range. And then it's from there, it's just blacked out. You know what I mean? Like, you have a bad $12 Chardonnay. You know, you don't like it, super oaky, whatever. It's just not your not your jam. And so now you have this image of Chardonnay that's built at a $12 level, where if you even were willing to spend double that or triple whatever, you could find something so much better 
but it's hard for people to take that risk because like why would I spend four times as much for a bottle that I already know I don't like but it's, you really don't know you don't like it it's the same way on the other end of the spectrum when someone says you know I had a $400 bottle of Chardonnay yeah. and I hated it yeah. why do you guys drink that so I think yeah it goes both ways on the cheap end or expensive end they, they don't like it They're, they don't understand why, why do you like this or why is that so expensive yeah. so I think the open mind in wine is, is really the key aspect of just trying different things. If you don't like something, that's okay. We all have those wines we yeah. don't like. Mm-hmm. But to just stay on the horse and try it again it from a different a place. Wine. Yeah, right. it doesn't make it bad. And that's, you know, wine is so subjective. Like there's no, you know, that's why when I did my externship in Hawaii, they did a, a paired menu. And the way they chose the wine I thought was super cool. Um, so they would have everybody in on a Monday. The restaurant was closed. You know, everybody from the hostess to the bookkeeper, the chef, the sommelier, like everybody came in. And the kitchen prepared all the new menu changes. And the psalm had picked out three different wines for each course. And so everybody got to taste the dish and taste each wine. And then, you know, wines one, two, or three, whichever one you liked better, you put in the bucket. It was blind. And then at the end of, you know, the psalm had picked the three on the table because he knew the dish and kind of had an idea. But then at, at the end of the day, they go through the bucket for each course and like, okay, number two, one for the first course. So that's the wine that's going on the menu. And I really like that because it takes from all types. You know, not everybody coming to your restaurant knows, like a lot of people don't know a whole lot about wine. Some people know a whole lot. A lot of people don't know a whole lot. And so it was pulling, like, opinions from people. Like I said, the bookkeeper who knew as much as she overheard while she was on the computer to the sommelier who picked out all these wines to the chef who's worked on the food. You're crowdsourcing. Yeah. Which gives you a really safe pick that the majority of people like this one. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And I just thought it was really interesting and really inclusive, you know, because... I've also worked at restaurants where it's like the chef and the psalm taste it and like they decide and it doesn't, you know, it, it really built that team sort of community and it was like I take that, I try to take that approach now. Like whenever we come up with a menu, I try to sit down with you and like see what you taste and you like to eat because, you know, two, three, four heads are way better than one. Right. You know, and kind of spitball ideas and I think so far it's produced some pretty, pretty cool dinners. It's just an interesting topic in general. The example I'd use is is wine shops. Um, Every wine buyer at each wine shop, it's one or two ways. You have the buyer that's buying the wines for their shop based on what they like, and then you have the buyers that are buying based on what their customers like. It's not about them. Mm -hmm. And so it's just very interesting how you balance that because on the wine list I did, I I have tons of wines on there that I love, but I can't take off the stuff that I don't like because other people do. Right. So finding that balance is very interesting, and that seems right. like that's a good way to approach that balance is, for lack of a better words, crowdsourcing it, yeah. right, and letting letting the masses, it's a safe bet, right? Yeah, it's a safe bet, and there's also that, like, you know, I, I, what connected with me there is, like, serving or putting on the menu what you like versus what people like, and it's like, there's some, some, or some part of, like, personality that comes through like when when you make a wine list or when you create a dish it's like yeah this isn't going to be like there, there's the artistic aspect of it or like the 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 part that comes with the knowledge and skill to like put together a beautiful wine list or create a dish where you're like 
this may not be for everybody, but I'm going to do it because it's what I want to do and what I feel shows the best. And I think that's, you know, that's the difference between business. That's where business meets passion in our industry, right? Is like the passion of what we like, what we've learned, how we present things, and then what the general public wants. And like I said, trying to balance that is tricky. And it's something that, uh, you know, in order to run a business, you have to be successful at. Yeah, and curbing your emotions. You know, when you do come across people that don't like your wine or your food, to, you know, to a certain extent, you can't take it personal. Right. Uh, of knowing that that's that person's palate and what they like and what they don't like. And we are not going to make everybody happy. So yeah. just take it with a grain of salt. But I think, yeah, that's a good approach. Um, okay. Well, I think right here, well, we're going to refill our glasses with some wine. Yeah. We'll take a brief break. Um, and then we're going to get into Carl's culinary experience. Got a lot of questions to dive in about that and try to see how his brain works as far as when he's preparing food and what he thinks about. Um, so we'll take a short break. Um, stay with us and we'll be right back. All right. Um, we are back from our wine break. I don't want you hearing my slurping and my swirling and my swishy swish swish. So Carl Krauss is here. Um, we covered a little bit of his formidable years in Chicago suburbs until he was around 18. Now you said, you know, your, your mom wasn't the, the most inspirational cook for you, but That's she did inspire nice you <laughs> to start cooking yourself. Yeah, no, she did. Yeah, and she pushed me. Um, we had a tech program, um, Technology Center DuPage TCD, and um, it's pretty cool. You had the option junior senior year, you'd get bused. You know all the all the high schools in our <coughs> county could get would get bused to this uh, tech school for half the day. You know, I think we had eight period class days at my high school, so like four class periods, you'd be there. And, you know, they had a bunch of stuff like cosmetics and uh, cosmetology, not cosmetics, cosmetology, uh, you know, computer stuff, uh, mechanic stuff where you work on cars. And they had a culinary program, like a legit, like, you got whites, you learn knife skills. They had a pretty, like, looking back on a pretty dope setup in their kitchen. Um, How many days a week would you do that? Five. You know? Every day for four periods? Yeah. And so um, my mom pushed me to do it, and I did not, like, you know, there was that big stigma back in the day, like, you know, cooking was a girl's thing, and, you know, not not something very manly to do or whatever, and <clears throat> I had trouble fitting in in high school and all throughout grade school, middle school, um, but definitely didn't want, uh, didn't need any more reason to be bullied. Um, so I was very resistant into going to, like, the open house and looking at it, but... I remember, dude, it was raining. My mom put me in the car and she drove me and I was pissed, dude, so mad. But like I got in there and like walked into the kitchen. Like, I'd worked in restaurants, I'd been working in restaurants since I was 15, so this is what, 17, 18, whatever. But like, you know, hot dog places, you know, deep fryers everywhere. This is like a legit kitchen, you know. Chefs wearing toques and the white coats, you know. Knife skills, a real dishwashing machine, which was crazy. Um, tilt skillets, all that sort of stuff, and I was like, yo, this is it. And, 
I signed up and I was able to do that for both half of my junior and senior year, which, um, you know, I credit that to making me, like, keeping me in school for those those years. Cause it wasn't an all-year thing? It was just half the year? No, half the day, but I got to do it both. It was all year round, but I got to do it for both junior and senior year for okay. half the day. Um, That's really crazy when you think about it. half the day you could yeah. go and specialize in this department well like back in the day like it was for um <clears throat> kids who weren't college bound right like it was all sort of like hands-on like blue collar skills you know um but a lot of kids like my age and stuff either used it to like dive into something a little more than just like shop class in high school or whatever to like really get their hands in and see if they wanted to pursue it in college or as a career and um, you know that's what happened with a lot of people you know a lot of people got in that class and thought they were gonna just you know come make snacks and brownies and whatever hang out you know they watching too much Food Network or whatever do we have this kid we called him Pothead Matt um, and he drove around, uh, you know, a Volkswagen bus and just, like... Pothead Mac. Pot, yeah, he, he had that name for a reason. It would just would come in and, like, where are the brownies at, bro? Like, I'm munching. <laughs> it's just so, so funny. But, you know, you get kids like that as part of the industry, right? You know? Um, pretty good snapshot of the industry for some people. But, um, yeah, you get a lot of people who would think they were just, like, making snacks and stuff for themselves and realize that it was actually, like, a lot of work. And so, like, that saved them going through culinary school to figuring that out or getting destroyed on an actual line in a restaurant to figure that out. And then you had people who pursued it and, like, had a good foundation and could walk into a kitchen and be told at 16, 17 years old, it's like, hey, go grab a two-inch hotel pan. Like, they know exactly where to go. Or, like, we need a blonde roux and you know how to make that and you have the basic ratio for mirepoix and stuff like really get a leg up on everybody else who's just beginning so that was really cool and my mom did push me into that so I give her full credit that's really interesting because you know I've worked in quite a few restaurants as well and it seems like the back of the house it depends where you're working for sure you know fine dining there's different levels of standards that apply to different establishments but for the most part back of the house like a lot of the people aren't formally trained no. right and so this yeah this gives you a huge leg up coming out of high school mm -hmm. you know levels above yeah. the prep cook in a restaurant that's just looking for a job or, yeah. or the dishwasher that's promoted to a prep cook mm -hmm. or the sous chef you you already know so many things that's so interesting to me yeah. I joined um, you know in my high school I was going to ask you how many kids were in your high school. I think my graduating class was like 3,200 or something like wow. that. Wow. was big. is big. Yeah. My I, mean, I definitely didn't know, like, anybody's name. You know, like, graduation was like six hours long. It's like, I've never met you, never seen you. Had one gym class with you freshman year. And, like... That's wild. Know, yeah. Dude, big, there was a... Uh, mine was like 130 kids in my graduating class. Really? The whole school had like 800 kids. Wow. Um, so it was very small. So we had, like, FFA for a thing um, which I was not into as a kid I did not want to for me I was like the cowboys and like I, I just wasn't involved in that mm -hmm. and, and um, I, I was you never mutton busted? No, what's mutton busted? do you know mutton busted? Oh, I don't know we'll have to watch busted. some videos so they take little tangent here they do it at rodeos and stuff 
So it's like the intro to like rodeo, whatever you call it, when you ride a bull rodeoing. Okay. So you take like a four, five, six year old, put him in all protective gear, and then strap him to a sheep and just like let him hold on. And run. <laughs> what? It's called mutton busting. <laughs> I want I want to get my kid into it. I think it'd be so. It's hilarious, dude. You should definitely check it out. Strapped up in protective gear. Yeah. That's so funny. But yeah, dude. Elbow pads. Michelin man. They can't. Yeah, can't exactly. Move. And then you put him on a sheep and just like spank the sheep and let it go and they hold on. <laughs> as long as I can do mutton busting yeah. I would love to watch some mutton oh, busting dude, there's some YouTube videos we'll get into it after this okay okay you know what other than FFA at my school there was a, there was a metal shop and and for me I was the, the word jock isn't really what I'm comfortable with assigning to myself but other people probably would um, I did a lot of sports and stuff so it, going into these extracurricular activities whether it be I joined choir for a year because Honestly, they were going to Disneyland, and I'd never yeah. been to Disneyland before, so <laughs> I was like, shit, I'll go yeah. to the choir. Yeah. And there was like three of us dudes in there, so it was nice. Uh, like, I was a young man, and I was like, oh, this is a good place to yeah, be, you know? Yeah, you can have fun. Ratios so I, in my favor here. I recruited a couple guys from the football team to join with me there so we go. could have some... There was a lot of distractions in the class, to mm-hmm. say the least. Um, elegant way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not timing anybody out. Um, so at this metal shop, you know, that's kind of the what you said to me like when you were first arrived you didn't know what to expect but then you're like oh this is serious this takes a lot of work mm-hmm. and you know the first thing i did in metal shop was make like a dustpan and it was it was cool and fun we got to mess around with each other mm-hmm. and, and be under some supervision with some like crazy equipment and it felt kind of cool to yeah. break away from the textbooks mm-hmm. yeah but it it didn't translate to directly to what i was doing mm-hmm. but this is interesting that this is what sparked almost or like really yeah, maybe opened your eyes to per- like the professional aspect like Cooking was always a hobby, you know, and I worked in restaurants because, one, that's an easy job to get as a 15-year-old, you know, like, you're going to work in a restaurant as your first job. I think everybody should have the first job in a restaurant or something. I think everybody should have a job in a restaurant regardless. Like, dude, if I ever become president, like, that's going (laughs) to be a law. Like, you must work either retail or in a restaurant industry for a year. See what it's like to deal with people. Yeah, like, here, you be on the other side of this, you know. I think you're right. You know, Israel does the two-year mandatory service duty, and I think we should do a year or something accumulative of hospitality. Yeah. Open a lot of people's eyes. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're biased because we're in the industry and we deal with a lot of entitled people. Take it as you will. Um, but but with that, so you know, you're you're 18. You've kind of got this this um, motivation under you to mm-hmm. do this kitchen stuff. Yeah. So from graduation of high school, when did you make the transition to go to the CIA? It was pretty quick. Um, <clears throat> and it's New York. Yeah, Hyde Park. Like, yeah. Uh, I won't go as the far. I won't go so far as to say it's the real CIA, but a lot of people refer to the New York campus as the real CIA. Uh, it's the original one. Um, what like, CIA stand for? It's not intelligence, is it? Well, not for this podcast. It's definitely not that. No, <laughs> it's the uh, the Culinary Institute of America. Um. So my, well, it had to be senior year, whatever, when do you start applying to schools, like halfway through your senior year? I was only going to apply to the CIA because it's like, that's where I'm like, that's it, going there. Like, if I don't get in, it doesn't matter because I don't want to go anywhere else. Um, I also applied to Johnson Wales, which has a few campuses. I applied to the Rhode Island one, which kind of has the most prestigious culinary program. And then uh, there, I don't know if it's still around, um, but there is a pretty decent culinary school in Chicago called Kendall, um, which uh, has, a, has a good culinary program. 
And um, so those were the three I applied to. And I got accepted into the CIA, which was awesome. And then I was signed up for a October start date. Because the, the way the CIA works is it runs, at least when I went, it ran on three weeks. Like every three weeks you switch classes and a new group of kids came in. So it was a year-round year program. There was, I think, like two weeks like for winter or Christmas break that the campus was closed and then the same amount in the summer sometime. But other than that, like, you know, regular college, you come home for like Thanksgiving for like two months or something like that. Like that didn't happen. It's like you had three, every three weeks, new kids were coming on campus and new people were graduating. So turn and burn really quick. Um, so I had an October start date. And then um, the day after high school graduation, we went out to visit. And I remember because we had to get up early and drive. We never flew anywhere. We always drove. And Pennsylvania just takes so long to drive through, dude. Like It's like a 12-hour trip, and I think eight of those hours are in Pennsylvania. So, <laughs> dude, come on. But anyway, like the day after college graduation, we drove out to the CIA campus to like check it out. And, uh, you know, you take the tour or whatever, and <clears throat> I remember the lady at the end of the tour was like, does anybody have any questions? I was like, yeah, when's your earliest start date? Because I'm starting for October. She looked, and she's like, oh, we have one for September 6th or whatever. I was like, great, change me. My mom was mortified, but I got in in September. So I spent the summer working in the restaurant I was working in, um, and then came September, I was out. So you said about three weeks, and you'll change classes. Yeah, well, some most of the classes. The, this is all changed, right? So I was there from '09 to 2012, I think. I'm dating myself a little bit, but yeah, three week. They call them blocks or three week blocks. So like, your first six weeks are called B block, and they're like you know, basic math, you know, food sanitation. You take some like. They call it gastronomy, which is a little bit about, like, food history a little bit. You take, like, basic writing and, like, classroom classes. <clears throat> and then after that, your next three weeks were fish and meat fabrication, fish or meat fabrication. So you would either go into this – dude, the fish room there was crazy. Like, you'd go into this refrigerated room, like, 42-degree room for eight hours a day and just cut fish. Um, you cut fish for the whole school. Wow. Um, how big was that room? Dude, it was it was big. Like, dude, it fit thirty. You know, class size of twenty, thirty kids. All the kids are in there doing that all day long. Well, so the way it works is there's there's two of those classes each day. There's an AM or a PM. So uh -huh. you start class at like classes are eight hours, like a work day. So like AM classes started at like six or whatever, and PM classes started at I don't know one or two or something like that. And so yeah. You would cut fish all day. You know, you get taught the different ways, the up and over method, the flat fish, the straight cut, identify different types of fish, you know, caviar tastings, um, learn cooking methods for s different types of fish, uh, fish identification, shellfish, shucking oyster, all that stuff. And then you'd switch and go into meat fabrication. Or that's the way I did. I did fish first and then meat. You know, you learn how to break down your primals, you learn the cuts, you know, uh, 
cooking methods like you know short ribs are a better braising cut than a grilling cut unless they're cut thin whereas like your your steaks like we talked about the other day high on the hog so you know sort of stuff is more of like your quick cooking methods because it's a less active muscle versus an over, more used muscle and then there's sausage day dude I definitely got a D in sausage day because you <laughs> can't go through like the day starts with like anybody makes any dick jokes like I'm failing you and like, dude, me and my buddies <laughs> couldn't just, do it. No, couldn't do it. Like, it was it was totally <laughs> worth the D for the day. D, D for, for dick day. jokes, yeah. There you go. So, um, yeah, totally worth it, but definitely failed that day hard because I just couldn't keep it together. <laughs> but you're 18 years old, and this guy's like shoving <laughs> sausage casings on like the sausage stuffers made by the company called F Dick. Like, that's who makes sausage stuff is F Dick. The icing on the cake. Yeah, for real. <clears throat> um, so that was you know cool. And then after that, those two classes, so that's your first, like, 12 weeks between V-Block and those two. Then the way I did it, uh, you go through skills one, which is basic, like, you learn your knife cuts and how to make stocks and basic soups. And then skills two, you get into more, more of these fundamentals, like you learn, like, what is a poach and how to poach and then how to braise and how to roast and, you, you know, all these basic techniques. And skills three, skills three is where it gets pretty cool. Like you turn into a production kitchen. So you take all those skills and you're actually working a station. And what they do is, you know, we're still in those AM, PM classes. And so every day from skills three on, you have service and you're open to the school. So like students will come through and like you're working skills three chicken fricassee. They'll come in and order fricassee and chef will call in, you know, one fricassee. And then you're like, yeah, chef. And you're like, act like you're in a restaurant, put it together, and this kid will go eat it. Which is pretty cool. Like, you're actually cooking for people, and then um, they get to eat it and, like, feedback. And it's not that. necessarily rehearsed, either. Like, the kid, the people come in, and they order what, what they, what they choose, want. right? Uh -huh. So you're yeah. not prepared for what they're going to order. You just And then, you know, you yeah. get the order, and you have to put it together. Right. You don't have 18 fricassees mm -mm. ready. Mm -mm. Yeah. And then you go through, at least when I did it, it was Cuisines of the Americas, which was the same sort of setup, that service setup, but it was, you know, food focused on from the American, like you had a day of Mexican cuisine and a day of, you know, what they called New England or New American where you made like pot roast and, you know, fish and chips or whatever. And then after that was Asia's, Cuisines of Asia? No, I can't remember, but you did Cuisines of Asia which was the same sort of thing, you know, divided up the whole continent of Asia into three weeks of food, which is ridiculous. But, like, you know, Japan, you'd roll sushi, or uh, Korea day, you'd have kimchi with braised short ribs, and, um, you know, still all serving to the school. Uh, and then we did garmage right before extern, which is where you get into this crazy, like, this is like the stuff you see in old school cookbooks, you know, like the crazy like jello molds, like meat jello and all that stuff. Mm. Um, you know, very composed, very detail oriented, like takes you like four days to make this one project. Um, Do you remember how many different blocks there were or from start to finish from your September date to when you were done with the CIA? How long is that? Uh, so I went through the four, or they call it the four-year program, the bachelor's program, which is like 38 months, I think. Um, but the, and the last half of that bachelor's program is like traditional college classwork, like book works, you know. 
but I think what you're asking is like the hands-on like cooking stuff that is so we started in September of 2009 and graduated in May of 2011 okay so you do do about two years of just the hands-on stuff yeah two years and uh, about six months of that two years is the externship where I mentioned is in Hawaii where you go out and like work in a real restaurant and are graded by the chef of the restaurant and all that stuff you have real chefs in these blocks as well that are teaching you or? yeah I mean they're all accredited chefs you know um, shit dude people like you know a lot of chefs go there to sort of retire right or mm. like they get burnt out from working the 14 hour days in a real restaurant so they come in and they you know Jack Black always has that uh I love this quote. Those who can't do teach, and those who can't teach, teach gym. You know, School of Rock, dude, I love that. (laughs) But, um, yeah, they were all, like, they're all in it, and they're all, like, they've all worked in restaurants. They've all seen it. A lot of them have gone through the program themselves. I'm sure Um, they're all very different. Oh, very different. If you could choose two, one of each, what was your favorite block, and who was your favorite chef instructor? Ooh, the favorite block? Um... Uh, dude, the favorite block. Um, so at the end, uh, at the end of your associate's degree, which is the hands-on cooking part, you work in on-campus restaurants that are open to the public, and you spend, um, you work in two different restaurants your last 12 weeks, and you spend three weeks in the back of the house and then three weeks in the front of the house at the same restaurant. And so my last restaurant I worked at was American Bounty, and my chef was Chef Rowe. And he was referred to on campus as Death Row. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I love Is he a hard ass? Well, that's what he comes out as, but he's, you know, like, it was just a bunch of people, like, I don't know, a bunch of people who couldn't hang, I think, you know, because he had no problem calling you out if you fucked up, you know? And, uh, which most chefs don't have a problem doing um but yeah dude we would just get smoked and he would just crack the funniest joke like the funniest one-liners and i remember he was talking to me i i worked soup station which was whatever what it is what it is but they had braised short ribs on the menu dude and this kid had to braise probably 60 or 80 pounds of short ribs every day and he came up to me he's like hey guys watch this you know whenever chef asks everybody's all good and he goes hey Brad it's like yeah chef he's like how you doing he's like good chef he's like see dude I I told you (laughs) it's just just like those one liners like I remember that was almost 10 years ago or whatever it still sticks with you yeah and it was just like he was that perfect balance of like serious hard ass but yet still so funny you know which like keeps things and like I feel like I feel like humor is a huge necessity in our industry with the hours we work the people we deal with um, the things that go wrong you know it was he had that right balance of like taking it serious enough to know like hey don't dick around and also like this still has to be fun or it's not gonna be this isn't gonna be worth doing for anybody and uh, that resonates with me yeah. um, you know when you when you join the military you have a, a basic training time and then you have what's called AIT which is advanced individual training where you learn your specific jobs and, and the instructors are different. Obviously, basic training is just normal drill instructors. Right. But then your AIT is like your job, the sergeants that teach right. you, you know what to do. To, yeah. 
and then so that that's what that reminded me of if we'd be in formation and we'd all be petrified right like we're getting yelled at all day yeah. we're just getting smoked and and there was a handful of drill sergeants that had the gift of like comical relief yeah drill sergeants will come up with the things you would never think people were gonna say mm-hmm. and and they would he from one moment be the the hardest person on the on the block mm-hmm. and then the next moment crack a joke yeah. and then if you smile you're doing push-ups yeah so of even trying to hold it in after they say some <laughs> funny stuff is, is, yeah, is funny yeah. yeah so that's what i remember you know you have your own inside jokes of you know sergeant butler's saying this or what's he gonna do this day or the chef you know hey guys watch this yeah. everything's all good Check it, yeah so I, I think there is a balance of of a leadership role of of staying stern or firm or getting the job done you know work first and then you can play hard later yeah. when the work is done or if you you know um so there, there is a fine balance and that's what that reminded me of um which I really enjoy. Looking back, there's a lot of funny moments. Yeah, looking back, there's a lot more funnier moments looking back than there were in the moment, for sure. Right. <laughs> for sure. Um, all right, well, we're going to take another break here. Um, then we're going to get into kind of some random questions. Not necessarily random. They're tailored, but uh, just some fun, interesting questions for maybe everybody to either learn something or, or just be entertained. So we'll take a brief break. Again, stay with us. Um, and we'll be right back. We're back. Um, if you're just joining us, we've covered um, kind of Chef Carl's formidable years and his academic or formal training in the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. So now I'm just going to get into some interesting questions to dive deeper on a, cu- a couple of these topics. You said that you've worked in restaurants and you've worked a lot of different, maybe, um, I don't know what the right word for it would be called, but stations so like a soup station as opposed to a salad or a meat or a grill which station do you enjoy the most do you like the grill do you like vegetables do you like pastry what's this what would you if you were to work in a restaurant which station would you like to do well that's a good question um you know and and to answer that correctly, like all all restaurants have different stations, right? Like some some people run things a little bit differently. Um, I've definitely enjoyed most of the stations I worked. I've only worked pastry once or twice, just because that's just not my not my forte. But I did enjoy it because it was a different type of challenge. Your wife is a pastry chef. Yes, can't she, give yes. her a shout out. Give her a shout out. Hi, Mel. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, and so I think I worked a station in Boston. Um, they called it uh, Meat CDP Chef de Partie, um, and so that station was responsible for literally just cooking meats for the entire menu. So the way that restaurant was set up was they had garmage, which is your salad, your cold, whatever, which was the first stations you worked which is ridiculous because it's one of the hardest stations because you are the first first dish on the menu, you're the newest person, and it's all plating, right? And, like, some things have, like, 17 or 18 touches to the plate, you know? 17 touches are, like, how many times you have to touch the plate to complete it with different ingredients or components. You know, a lot of cutting, a lot of handling high-end ingredients like foie gras and 
white asparagus that cost $42 a pound and all this crazy stuff. You're brand new and you're tasked with responsibility. Yeah, uh-huh. um, and so that's typically how most stations work because you're not actually cooking. It's just more or less plating. Once, the, once you get the prep done, it's more or less plating. And then uh, we had a very French setup. Uh, this is the Monton, the restaurant I worked at in Boston. Um, <clears throat> we had two entremets. Uh, which were like, I don't know what entremet means in English, but it's the person who cooks all the accompaniments to the dish. So if you have, let's say, a beef dish with uh, palmzana and roasted carrots and, you know, a truffle jus, like, they make the carrots, they make the palmzana, they make everything, but the beef for that plate is on them. And then your job as the CDP or the chef de partie is... You're responsible for your entremet and everything they do, as well as like cooking the meat. So you're in charge of your your side. Do we worked on this stove? Do it's called a Maltini, and it was uh, flown in from Italy, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Dude, they had to like take the wall out of the restaurant to bring it in. Like, dude, just a gorgeous like the Ferrari of stoves. And so there was meat side and fish side. Um, and on fish side, it was the same setup, the entremet and the, the fish CDP. Um, but I definitely, like, meat CDP was my jam. Like, breaking down whole pigs, saddles and lamb. And then, like, like that was the prep work, which was super awesome. Um, making sausages, terrines, confits. And then during service... Whenever you got a ticket called, you were busy, right? Like, that's how... We didn't get tickets. Like, chef would call in, like, two tastes, and you would know that, like, tasting is, you know, four courses in is when it hits you, and you got to do squab followed by venison, and then you end with, you know, the New York strip or whatever. Like, those are your three. And, like, you have to start those things, like, right away because they need to cook. They take 15, 20 minutes to, like... You know, we did everything butter-basted, you know, low and slow, so you get that, like, sous-vide look. Um, you know, or you got to crisp the skin and you got to get your pan hot and all this stuff. Um, but it's got to rest too, right? And so the way it worked is like you would get called in a ticket and then you'd get, they call it walked on and fired. So if you got walked on, you know, walked on to squab, which meant the course before the squab just left the, just left the kitchen. So, you know, you had two squab on deck and then when you got fired on it, it meant that's cleared. We're going to bring it soon and this is all done verbally like you didn't write anything down there's nothing for you to reference and no there's no reference dude and like you just got so good at listening and like remembering be like chef is that the one no butter and he'd like be like yes like yeah bitch i got you like pay attention but you never (laughs) say that you know sometimes the chef yeah but it was definitely one of one of my sous chefs at that restaurant he referred it to like being a duck right cool and calm like on top of the water right just chilling but underneath like you're going because you've got you know you're finishing things in the oven you're you know you've got your and then you're cooking foie gras which you have to cook like fish right and it's like you wait till you're fired on and like bring it in two minutes before you put it in the pan so you've got to be listening for that while you're dealing with and basting your squab You've got your short ribs that are heating up in the oven. You're roasting, you know, a whole chicken for two, which has to come out and rest for 10 minutes every 15 minutes. And you're doing this for, I don't know, dude, we did up to like 100 people once. It's just so much going on 
over such a long period of time where like all those other all those other stations you didn't really have to pay attention unless you had a risotto but all those other stations you just had to listen to the walks pretty much because there wasn't really anything that took that much time to do you know a piece of fish takes two or four minutes to cook depending on what kind of fish you're cooking how thick yeah and you know how you're cooking it and all that stuff but like like you had to pay so much attention like from the beginning to end you were just your brain was full of like what's coming in tempering it to cook it seasoning it you know resting it carving it is a whole nother thing all this is incorporated into the allotted amount of time yeah and you have four different meats you may be needing for this yeah on two different menus yeah that's that's intense and and you know for me at least coming from the military it's it's like I translated directly to the restaurant, and I've, I have an appreciation the most for chefs and servers, whether it be front of house or back of the house, anybody in a restaurant, when you do not, sh- if there's a fire in the back of the house, the front of the house, you would never know. That's what I appreciate, right? And so you said, like a duck on the water, you're calm, but underneath, you may be losing your shit. And, and so I have the utmost respect for people that don't show when they're losing their shit. Right, so you may have all these things being yelled at you at one time, but you're calm and collected on the surface. Yeah. Underneath, you're bubbling. Yep. But I think that's what the skill is, and, and what I've at least tried to do as far as like coordinating dinners and stuff with mm-hmm. all the logistics are a nightmare, and yeah. it all has to come together at the right time. And in my head, it, I'm going crazy, mm-hmm. but I have to portray a sense of calmness and confidence yeah. to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a, a balance, right? That's yeah. a, a, it's a learned practice. Skill. Yeah, it's, it's a learned, learned skill. skill. I agree. Um, so, so when I go out to eat at restaurants, I mean, that's definitely one thing. When my server comes at me and, and they're sweating and they're... The one thing that I hate the most is when you're, you're blaming your team for why... Th- yeah. The reason is the whatever the excuse may be of, oh, the chef didn't do this or the person didn't yeah. do this, the bartender. It's It doesn't matter. Just yeah. own it and yeah. fix the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Don't show me the restaurant's on fire and you're out of your mind Dude, right everybody now. Everybody makes mistakes. It's fine. It's fine to make a mistake. Right. Just own it. And that, own it. Just own it. And it's fine. Dude, I've made so many mistakes. So many. It's just like, yeah. Dude, I fucked up. I'm sorry. We're all human here. Here's how I can fix this. Let's move on and get to the rest of your evening. And at a table for the front of house side, right, where the meal comes out wrong. And honestly, like if the, the chef cooked it rare and they wanted it well done mm-hmm. and the expo is supposed to check this and it gets past them and the server is supposed to check yeah. it and they deliver it wrong, the server has to own up to it. Yeah. If it's their fault or not, like yeah. I'm very sorry. And then just pre- present the solution. The I will get this fixed right away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some restaurants tip out very nicely to the back of the house. That's true. Um, but but that that's one thing that I just I, I can't help but to notice and really respect is when you um, you do things just eat it and move on yeah. present the solution and carry on. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I mean so with that the stations the the, the meats is, is wonderful for you. Mm-hmm. How <laughs> we can go on tangents on every one of these questions, yeah, but right. but uh, how difficult is it to roast a full bird? Difficult is not like. I mean, it's not hard. Like, no, cooking isn't hard, right? Like, none of it's... Right? Like, there's a difference between simple and easy, right? And there's the same difference between difficult and hard, I feel like, but it's not as easy to explain. Like, roasting a bird, you put it in the oven and cook it, you know? But the challenge comes 
in, especially in a restaurant setting, is doing all these things at once, mm-hmm. right? Like, I have this, this, this e- most easily relates to me with eggs, right? Like, most people cook themselves eggs at home. They do it while they're drinking their coffee. You know, it takes them two, three minutes to cook at eggs just how they like it. And then they go to a restaurant and they expect their eggs to be done in two or three minutes just like they like them. And, like, you'd be shocked at how many people confuse over easy and medium, you know? Like, which is fine. You know, everybody's got their own opinion of things or what they what they learn and stuff. But it's like, the guy cooking your eggs is also cooking everybody else's eggs in this restaurant right now. And they all want them different. They all want them different. So, like, dude, I think breakfast is the hardest meal to work in a restaurant. Bacon and ham and yeah. sausage mm-hmm. and eggs. And, and everybody wants it now because they do it for themselves at home this fast, you know. Um, but roasting a whole bird, um, you know, it's not... The trick is getting the dark meat and the white meat. I'm assuming we're, we're going to talk chicken here because that's what I was right. referring to. Um, getting them done at the same time because they cook at very different speeds, right? You know, the legs are a high active muscle, so they're tougher, so they need to be one cooked more to break down. And then, whereas the breast is a lighter meat, not as active as a muscle. Um, well, when you're roasting a full bird, I mean, the, the breast is on the top usually, right? Usually. I mean, there's different, so there's different, there's different schools of thought on that. Traditionally, it's always breast up. I've heard people, you know, doing. Uh, breast down so that all the all the fat and the juices drip ah. into the breast which makes a whole lot of sense to me um, but if you're doing in a restaurant setting if you're doing a whole bird like the idea is you're probably going to present that bird right right and so you do it breast up or we did it breast up so that it presented nice and it wasn't smushed or whatever but it takes about when you get a it was a f- 45 to an hour long because the way we did it we roasted for 15 minutes let it rest for 10 roasted for 15 minutes let it rest for 10 if i can jump in what what's why do you rest it and put it back in and rest and put it back in so the best way i can describe this is it's called carryover cooking right and so it's a lot like stopping a car. Just because you come off the gas doesn't mean the car stops. Like, just because you pull right. things out of the oven or the pan doesn't mean they stop cooking. So the whole idea is, you know, you're roasting this thing in a 500-plus degree oven for 15 minutes. You're pulling it out. You're letting all that residual energy and heat penetrate deeper into, you know, the harder parts to cook, deeper into the bird, while the outside is cooling and not overcooking. And you're not going to burn the outside. Yeah, you're not going to overcook the outside. That makes total sense. Um, This is a technique that's really good to use with fried products, too, like fried chicken and stuff, because, you know, to cook a chicken thigh or chicken leg takes a long time in a deep fryer, but if you leave it in there that whole time, the outside's going to get too dark, whereas if you pull it out and rest it, it's kind of this gradual... You know, you're letting the outside cool and stay, you know, fully cooked at that temperature while you're slowly getting the inside to that ideal temperature. That makes <coughs> inherent sense to me. Science. Yes, science, bitch. Yeah, for real. Mr. White, science, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> Breaking Bad fans out there. Yeah. Okay, um, so the next, uh, we'll dive right into it. What's your favorite vegetable to, to work with? Vegetable. Now, are we talking technically a vegetable 
or are we talking what we refer to as vegetables? This is a very open-ended question. I am sorry. No, no, that's fine, because, like, it took me a long time to realize that most things we refer to as vegetables are actually fruits. Anything containing a seed, as most of us know, are fruits. Right. Um, but I think we're referring to vegetables. God, I sound like such a douche talking like this. Um, no, we gotta have we gotta have definitions. Science again. Um, you know the savory, like less sweet po- carrots, products. Yeah, potatoes, carrots, yeah. beets. beets. Um, Maybe. Do you like versatility of some vegetables? Do you like what some vegetables do to a certain dish? Just is there one vegetable that always works well for you? You always have a plan for. What, maybe yeah, I, I see where you're going. Um, I like, and I think this speaks to sort of my whole style of cooking. I like things that are typically, you know, either very common, and like you know, carrots. Right, everybody's had a carrot. Um, I do love sunchokes. So sunchokes are delicious. Mm. Um, but I think I think to answer your question more thoroughly, like carrots, right? Like everybody's had a carrot. You know, you've either had it like probably mushy and oversteamed and flavorless, or like the baby carrots, like dipped in ranch raw. Um, and so there's so much you can do with a carrot and make it taste so good. You know. Um, and then there's also the other aspect of like I always gravitate towards beets. We've done a couple beet dishes together because right. a lot of people don't like beets or they think they don't like beets because they've had them out of a can. They taste like dirt, you know. They're they're. I'm in that camp. They're typically not good, you know. But when they're treated properly, they're delicious, you know. And so I like those types of things that are either commonplace where you can elevate them and like really show what ingredient they are or what they're like just transform them in a different way or serve them with a different flavor and it's like yo this is delicious or something that is typically frowned upon or disliked and go from there yeah yeah bring in again an open mind to wine but an open mind to food for for a lot of people to be able to try something like this i growing up thanksgiving was my least favorite holiday I wasn't. I was a very picky kid, and so everybody loved their beets. And I was like, "What the hell is this? This I don't like this." But as as I've got more experience, beets are amazing. Radishes. I like root vegetables, and and uh, and I really, yeah. So like you said, having an open mind and, and different versatilities for each vegetable, you can pull out a lot of different stops. A mole over carrots or grilled beets. There's a lot of different ways you can do these things as opposed to just coming out of a can. Um, well, and a lot of it goes with, like, the quality of ingredients that you're getting, right? Like That's everything. It's, it is everything, you know? Um, very few people have, has a, have had a fresh duck carrot. You know, oh, parsnips are definitely a vegetable I really like working mm. with. Definitely a vegetable. I think that's a direct translation that we could have a whole other podcast on is quality of the product mm-hmm. to begin with will dictate a lot of the finished mm-hmm. result. Yeah. From wine, grapes... What you have for good fruit will make the best wine. What you have, every chef wants the best produce they can have yeah. to make the best dish. Mm-hmm. So I think that's all in the same vein. When people ask me, should I cook with this wine or that wine? When should I throw my wine out? And I tell them, the chef's going to pick the freshest vegetables to make the dish with. Yeah. Use your fresh wine to cook with yeah. over a three-week-old wine. Exactly. It's going to be different. Right. And so, just, it, again, we're getting into subjective territory. Sure. But I think it's a commonality of... Use the freshest, best you have available. Exactly. No, yeah, that, that's great. Um, 
this is going to get into maybe a little bit more complicated subject, but as it comes to, we've done a lot of dinners together, and I've tried to pick your brain here and there. I don't do the best job at it sometimes, but oh, when we talk, when we talk about price per head, and you have to go into your own head and think about how many people you're serving, the price you're getting paid per person, how much food you can make with that price, all these logistics. Yeah. So forecasting and budgeting for food costs. You know, for people listening that haven't had to do any of this before, is it more or less difficult from dinner to dinner with either, so say for example, hypothetically, Troon pays you 50 bucks mm -hmm. to do a per person yeah. for a 10 people dinner. Yeah. In your head, how do you have methods? Do you have heuristics that you go through to help you kind of quantify okay i get 50 bucks per head do i spend 10 of it on meat five of it for vegetables how how does your mind work when you start getting those numbers uh so the first question if, if you approached me and said that i'd say okay how many courses do you want to talk about because that to mm -hmm. me is very important um but 50 bucks i'm going to make it 100 just for easy math. easy math yeah so 100 bucks a person right and we're just doing this for numbers, not actual dollar value. So a hundred bucks a person to me means I have between twenty-five and thirty dollars per person for ingredients. So in culinary school, you're taught that food costs should be th around thirty percent. So a third of you know you go out to a steakhouse and you order the ribeye, dry aged ribeye, and it costs you a hundred dollars for just a steak. What that should mean is that that piece of meat costs the restaurant $30 to purchase. That other $70 is getting paid to the person cooking it. It's getting paid to keep the lights on. The Labor. Rent, the dishwasher, the silverware, the, the water that the water glass you broke when you sat down, you know, all those other things. And so that's the method I approach that with too is, you know, okay, 50 bucks a per, we're going to say 100, 100 mm. bucks a person. So I have $30 to spend on food per person. And so for say it's 10 people, you go to the store and you say, I need lettuce for 10 people. Yeah. Or you're picking it from a garden mm -hmm. and you think, I need this much. Yeah. And then you say, maybe this, that equals to 20 bucks a person. Right. Or, or do, you, do you say, 100 bucks for 10 people is $1,000. I spend 300 of it That's on... That's kind of more how I go for it. Um, that's that yeah i think that like an overall approach for a whole dinner right because it gets kind of tricky like you know smaller numbers like oh you know this person like it's, it's just harder to do like oh this person's gonna eat a potato and a half which is actually 57 cents so i should have you know i should have 24 dollars and it's a lot more work. yeah and so like just a general sort of like okay when i'm done shopping i should have spent about 300 bucks for this for this is the protein the most expensive typically or seasonally it depending it, it depends seasonally like if you've got a nice cheese that you're putting on the menu mm. um where it gets tricky for me is i use a lot of ferments that i make and um those don't really cost me anything except my time you know some of the misos that we've served are four years old those like, are investments that you've yeah. made already so, like how do you how do you charge or how do you quantify that? You know what I mean? 
Like, how do you put a dollar amount on... You're not rebuying. Yeah, you're not... Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's where it gets tricky, but I think there is added value to that. Yeah, there's more intangibles, right, of yeah. your time you've put into it, your own craft, your own personality that's now into... We use a lot of... Um, Carl has this starter culture for bread that's named Marvin. Dude, shout out to Marvin. Shout out to Marvin. We use Marvin all the time. Um, on my Instagram, I've shouted out Marvin. Marvin's the man. And um, that's that's a perfect example of, yeah, exactly. you know, when you're in an art museum, how much is this piece of art actually worth to you? And and it's different for every chef. And is based the on painting it, that good? Or is it just because it's been around since 1678 that it's... Right. You know, and that so we get into to murky waters here. Mm -hmm. So it, it's whatever the chef feels comfortable with or the, and the, the person who's paying for it. You know, it's a very interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. but, but so, okay, so that's a good rule of thought, you know. But now when I go to a restaurant, I'm ruined because I know this 90-day yeah, sure aged Wagyu that I'm paying 100 bucks for a la carte, it only costs them so much. Yeah. But, but oh, again, yeah. we can't forget everything else that is buffered into the rest of the $70. Yeah. You know, the napkins. When you go to the bathroom and you have brand new silverware and napkins waiting at your table for you, mm -hmm. the server had to do that. They had to get it. The time it cost, the labor percentage. Yeah. Let's not forget you're not washing any dishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. They're saving you a lot of time. Exactly. So there's, there's a quality and an experience level that is tailored in. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, it's fascinating. Um, switching to a home kitchen. So say in your house right now, what is the most valued item in your kitchen? Most valued item? Are we talking food ingredient or like apple? Tool, like tool? appliances, tools, like the item oh, in your man. kitchen that you use for cooking? What's my one thing you could... My wife would say microwave. Could... That's what my wife would say was microwave. <laughs> um, but what would I do? What do I go with? You know, cast iron pans, regular pan. Um, oh, dude, I do love my Finex. The Finex. I do love my Finex. Shout out to Finex. Shout out to Finex. Thanks for listening. But um, I do love, you know, it doesn't have to be Finex, but like a cast iron pan is pretty super versatile. Versatility is what yeah, that offers yeah. you, right? Yep. Versatility. You can do pretty much anything in it. Clean up super easy. It doesn't even go through the dishwasher. Just wipe it out. Um, definitely, definitely reaching for the cast irons. Um, and what? Do you have a favorite knife? Do you have a favorite, um, I mean, this... Yeah, whichever one's clean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too, yeah. Um, uh, I would say, I do, I do love my circulator, but not, I love it for thawing stuff. Uh, is that a water circulator? Like the immersion circulator, like a sous vide machine, yep. so okay. to speak. Um, they're great. I love them for thawing. Like, you fill a thing with water, set that thing, you know... 70 degrees or whatever put a raw piece of meat in it and like a few hours later it's thawed so like that saves so much time and like oh i'm gonna have steak i want to have a nice steak on wednesday so i better pull that out sunday so it's thawed it's like no nope. oh forgot about it great here we go you can start that when you start chopping vegetables uh-huh yeah and so that that i think is something i use quite a bit um for that Okay, cast iron pans mm -hmm. is a worthy investment for us all to invest in. Yeah. Um, we've met people that run their cast iron pans through the dishwasher. Yeah, my um, grandma's one of them. <laughs> everyone has their own ways of doing things. Um, I need to get a really nice cast iron pan. I would love to. I don't try not to smoke out my apartment and set the fire alarm oh, dude, off. That is a bummer with those, though. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Mm. Okay, so as far as questions go with food, um, we're going to transition a little bit more about 
incorporating wine because um, that's that's the reason I'm here. Um, I love food. I just don't know as much about it. So now we're going to tie it together. Carl and I do a lot of collaboration dinners together, which is for me a pleasure. Um, when I get a taste with chefs or cheesemakers or anybody else that's not necessarily focused on wine, they say things that I would never think of. An Asian radish doesn't come to my mind. I've never had one. I don't use it, but other chefs that use it, they may say that as a tasting note. Yeah. So it's it's nice to have, like you said before, two, three, four heads are better than one. Mm -hmm. So broad question. Um, I think you've told me this answer before, but I'm trying to flush it out of you. Simple question. What's your favorite grape? Oh, dude, Riesling, for sure. Why? I love the versatility of it. Um, you know, when in wines class, we were taught very basically how to pair wine, and they refer to the Tower of Power by going like body, like you know your your whites start up here, and you know your lightest Chablis all the way down to like your biggest Cab Sauvs or Syrah all the way down here. Um, and like things that are no notoriously hard to pair with, like artichokes or spicy foods, is like either throw bubbles at it or Riesling. And like, I love both of those things. And I, I, I like to think it's m more than just because of how versatile they are. Um, but I love Riesling. I love all the floral notes. I love the juicy, like the juicy peach notes. I, I also love that most people don't like it because they've had terrible sweet reasons. It's like thanks oh, America. Yeah, it's like oh here try this one. I mean, one of my favorite bottles coming out of Oregon is Pierce Riesling out of the Willamette Valley. Super juicy, super floral, no residual sugar. Right. It's like oh here try this Riesling. It's it's dope, dude. And they're like oh no I don't like sweet wines. It's like no this isn't sweet. You uneducated ass. Like this is not sweet. You know, this is just delicious. It has all those sweet flavors, but it's not sweet. That's the one of the biggest dogmas that I come across is people see the word Riesling and they automatically think sweet. And that's why I said thanks, America, is because yeah. I feel like we have ruined this. Because, well, of course, Germany has sweet Rieslings. The best Rieslings in the world have residual sugar to certain extents. That's yeah. why we have the system for that. Um, but the right amount of sugar is the key and here in America we kind of gluttonize things and we have these syrupy Rieslings and those are really hard to deal with but when you have the right balance of a Riesling of sweetness and acidity it's magic yeah it's magic it's awesome. um, sommeliers and wine professionals chefs there's so many things that hit your palate that it, to a certain to a certain point it's so fatiguing mm -hmm. on your mouth that that's what I think Riesling does the best is it's that refreshing pick-me-up mm -hmm. But it's even, you know, some young Rieslings can be like stripping the enamel off your teeth, really ripping acid. Yeah. But regardless, they're always a refreshing take mm -hmm. instead of a heavy wine. Like some Viognier's can get kind of flabby. So I think Riesling is the versatility. You have a sense of sweetness, but you have a lot of acid that really helps cut through whatever you're doing with it. Right. And I also appreciate that you can drink it by itself. Like there's a lot of wines out there that are better with food. Right. And like I've found, at least for me... Like Rieslings, you can drink by themselves, and they're just like they're just as complex and enjoyable and enjoyable by themselves as they are with food. I served that Pierce Riesling I was talking about. I did it with uh, potato gnocchi with a kimchi bacon sauce, right? And like kimchi is a nightmare to pair with wine. It's fermented, so it's acidic, it's funky, it's spicy. Like 
it is a nightmare. But with that reasoning, you know, it was beautiful. Mm. Like, and that's what like two things that shouldn't that don't make sense make sense. And like that's what that's why reasoning holds such a special place. Well, this is going to my end of the next thought is, you know, I know how I pair wines from a wine perspective, but I always find it fascinating a chef's perspective to pair wine with the food. Um, as far as like what what we look for, say as a sommelier, structurally we're looking at the wine. So you have acid levels, you have tannin levels, you have alcohol levels, you have body, you have the viscosity of different flavors, and we're trying to match that with chemistry, tannins and fat, acid and salts. Yeah. You have these different methods. Does your mind work the same when you're pairing food, or do flavors come first, or does the structure or chemi- How do you approach pairing wine with food? So, I think there's several ways that it goes about, right? Like, you taste the wine first, and it depends on, at least for me, like, what's the first thing I taste? Like, we tasted, was that Viognier we tasted first this afternoon? It was Vermentino. Vermentino. Sorry, How dare you? V? Yeah, do we start with a V? We're, I don't know, three, four glasses deep, dude, we're doing great. Um... But the first thing I got was stone fruits, right? Like peaches, juicy, like on the nose and on the palate. So that's the first thing my mind goes to. Whereas if I drink an acidic wine, like we did, uh, what's the wine we're going to do with the Briette? What was that? Uh, The Cote de Coubly Red, so Syrah Grenache. Right, but the first thing I tasted was, with that was acid. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I knew I wanted to put something rich and fatty against. So do you that. kind of run with what jumps out at you first? Yeah, when okay. we're doing like when we're doing a wine paired dinner, I think I, I listen to what the wine says first, whether that's well flavor said. or structure or whatever, and I go with that. Now from there, you can decide like. The way to at least there's two ways that I like to pair, dish food to wine, and it's either you can complement it. Or contrast, right? So, like, you can either with that stone fruit wine, the Vermin Viognier, um, you know, you can play on the stone fruit. So, we're going to do a peach dish, right? Or you can contrast it and say, like, yo, with these stone fruits, I'm going to go with, you know, this really rich, sort of like cured pork dish, you know, and play off of that fruitiness with some really deep, salty, savory, you know meat notes and those will both work great because the peaches in the peach dish will play great with the stone fruits whereas the meat will complement the peaches in the wine Um, and that's the same the same way you go with acid or acid gets a little tricky because you don't want to have an acidic dish with acid that's where they fight but um, you know sort of like the same thing with body like you can either complement or contrast like you can either let the wine speak for the course and be like this is the the food is here just to bring out these notes in the wine or you can let them speak equally or you can do the same to the food where it's like situationally the food yeah right. i think it all depends on you know, that's why i really like to taste the wines before i do these paired dinners is because you can really hone in and you know come up with something that really works together um yeah i think that answered your question no that's exactly right because i I think it is situational when i'm doing a blind tasting for example you know don't fight it right if there's friction like take the friction out if something's jumping out at you why address it first yeah right and so if yeah if acid is the main component that i'm feeling first 
my mind goes to high acid. What, which grapes usually have high acid? Mm -hmm. Or when we're talking food pairings, high acid jumps out at me. I think cream, mm -hmm. cheese, yeah. rich. What what can this acid cut through? Exactly. Opposite of the vinegar side, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't want to the, the 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 sour or tart or acidic components of a wine or food can almost be a, a hard contrast to do. Yeah, unless you're Riesling. Unless you're Riesling. You know, we can argue about Syrah. Okay, um, I'm listening. I think it's it's appropriate for any given situation to judge that situation at that moment. You know, whether it's the tannins or acid or flavors that jump out at you, run with that and then find the hard stuff. It's like when you when you're taking a multiple choice test or a math exam or an SAT, if you're stumped on a question, move on to the next one and come back to that, right? Do the easy ones first or do the obvious ones first and then you can come back to the harder yeah. where you have to look for things more. Mm -hmm. It's kind of where my mind's at with that. So, I, no, you answered it well and I, and I agree. Um, I have uh, just a couple more things, which uh, I'm going to try to save the better one for last. So... Sure. Out of all the wine dinners that you've done with me or with other people just in Southern Oregon, we'll, we'll keep it region specific, mm -hmm. two-part question, um, is there any specific grape or style of wine that you like to pair food with the most or that is easiest to come up with something? So for example, is it Syrah or Tempranillo or Pinot? What, is there a grape that lends itself to more creative juices? Or is it a style of wine? Is it white wine or red wine or orange wine or sparkling that make this decisions easier or more creative? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But I don't think... I don't think there is. You know, I mean, unless we go into versatility where it's like, yeah, you can throw anything at bubbles and it's going to be good. Right. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any specific grape... What do you like to play with the most? Stuff that I haven't tasted before. Stuff that's unique, like, you know, different varietals, different for, different blends, co-ferments, you know, the stuff that you guys at Troon are really good at is, you know, I've learned so many varietals just by, so many varietals that were not taught to me before, like, coming out and hanging out with you guys. And there's just so many, so many out there that I didn't know about. Um... That but kind of I, opens the book to new pairings, right? Yeah. It opens Instead the, of doing the same Merlot all the time, yeah. you have a Tanat in the mix. Yeah, it opens the book to new pairings, but also, like, I mean, you know this just as well as anybody, like, vineyard to vineyard, row to row, like, Syrah's chain. How many Syrah's you guys got going on now? Like, six? Five, five six, or six, yeah. yeah. And so, like, you know, there's no grape that speaks to me just because they're so different each way. You know what I mean? I will say Syrah is cool because it does, it can lend itself into desserts, which is really fun. Mm. Um, you know, typically goes well with chocolate or like stewed fruits, cooked fruits and stuff. But um, yeah, I don't think there's one, there's not a varietal that I get super excited about specifically. What about a style? Do you, like for me, as we said earlier today, like orange wines are my kryptonite. Mm -hmm. I think they're so versatile with food because they offer a cold refreshing temperature with tannins of a red mm -hmm. that kind of bridge the gap do you find do you are your favorite pairings or dishes that you come up with usually in the beginning of the menu towards the end do you like the red wine pairings more or white wines is there anything like that that comes to mind well i typically lean towards whites just because that's what i i like um i tend to think whites right like reds have to have something typically like heavier or bigger like 
reds typically pair with meats most of the time. Kind of right? match their intensity. Yeah. Whereas some, like, some whites can hold themselves all the way, like, chicken, pork, pushing duck sometimes, you know? Like, shit, dude, I've had some Chardonnays that I even put, like, a butter-basted steak against every once in a while, you know? Like, super high acid, super mineral, like... It might not be the best pairing, but it would hold its own, you know? Right. Whereas I think I think the versatility of whites gives you a little more to play with. And I don't know if that's just because I tend to lean more towards those white sort of like... I tend to like the juicier floral, um, you know, high acid notes rather than like the, the red notes. I love red wine, but I think to answer your question, there's just more... There's more room to play with whites, I think. I, I think I agree with you, and that's just to double down. I think that's why I like the oranges the most, is because they right. have that Venn diagram of all the realms. White wines, you have the, the dishes that go well, and you can venture into the dishes that usually pair with red wines when you have a more structured, heavier, full-body white wine. Right. But reds, you're stuck. You can't you're go stuck. backwards. Yeah, you can't go like very rarely. I've found once or twice where you can like start the meal off or like in your second or third course have a a very light like pinot you know or something like that where you know i've served a chardonnay you know four or five courses deep into a menu Mm. and it's it's worked um but yeah definitely that like rosé orange amber crossover is definitely a sweet spot um, to play but those typically don't get from what i found there's not much variety in those. Like a rosé doesn't tend to get. There's not a whole lot of difference between rosés from here to there. At least from what I found. Any lighter acidic or heavier, more structured. Yeah, or, you know, right? that, that's not a big spectrum. Right. Spec- that's a, yeah. That's a good way to describe it. But I feel like orange wines, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get on my soapbox, I promise. But orange wines, I feel like, have a huge spectrum from four days maceration to a Romato Pinot Gris that looks like a rosé but it's orange wine mm-hmm. all the way to that Radicon we had the other day that's like oh, that the so most cool. intense blood-like mm-hmm. almond crazy orange wine so they can kind of get best of both worlds um, those are also they're not that common too is also I don't right. get that many opportunities to work with orange wine I think is I mean, a problem <laughs> for me like, right. I, I think you're definitely right you know those rosés Orange wines, that middle ground, very versatile. Like, I mean, dude, you could probably do a whole menu of just orange wines, and it would progress just like a white into red, depending on like. You were I would love to do that. Let's do it. I'm down. Orange wine dinner, baby. Orange wine. Okay, so um, we'll we'll wrap it up on this last question, just because this is a this is a personal question that I would love to hear your answer on, because I have my own picky things. Working in restaurants and in wine and hospitality. We have our own biases. We have our own preferences. It's not about right or wrong. It's about subjective um, emotions. So, (laughs) when you go out to eat at a restaurant, is there one thing in particular or is there something that you can't help but notice, whether it be good or bad? So for me, for example, just to set you up, when I go out to eat, I know if the restaurant's busy or not. Right, we can tell. We know what you're doing. We've worked back of the house, front of the house. We know what you're doing back there. So if I order chicken fingers and fries, yeah. and they're delivered, and I say, "Can I can I get some ranch with these fries, actually, please?" And they say, "Yeah, I'll have it right for you." Mm-hmm. And they take a while. I know that you're not 
you're not busy on the floor. What are you doing back there that my ranch right. is taking so long? Right. Or if it's super busy, I know what's going on. Right. You have all the time in the world to get my ranch. I'm not in a rush. Right. But I see through it. Right. It's now transparent to me. Is there anything that you're picky about when you go out to eat? Uh, I think this kind of ties back to what you were saying about you know sort of the duck on the water thing like you I don't want to say like servers should enjoy their job because it's definitely not a job you should enjoy but like I think I almost want to say rude service mm. I think is something that I mean is is it's like offensive to me you know like it takes a lot for me to not tip or to tip less than 20%, you know? Um, but that's definitely something is like, yo, dude, you need to, like, get your shit together because this is not cool, you know? Um, but, yeah, definitely, like, the busyness, like you were saying, um, I notice when the menu's wrong. I do notice that. Like, if I order something and they forget a component or uh, you know they set a different type of lettuce or herb or something like that what does it take for you to send it back oh no I, I won't send it back I just I just won't you'll eat it yeah there's I mean very few I can't think I can't think of a time that I've sent anything back um, you know maybe if it was like like if I was at a steakhouse and like I ordered a steak like rare or medium rare and it came out well done then maybe I'd say something but like I man nobody likes that guy you know what I mean right. and like nobody wants to be that guy either and uh you know two sides to every story and all that stuff and just like just means I'm probably not coming back which is enough like I don't need to make a big deal out of it I don't need I don't need to ruin the server's night. I don't need the cook to go get yelled at. I don't need the cook to feel like a piece of shit because he overcooked whatever or forgot this component. Like, it's not... It's not It's not worth it. Like, who am I? You know what I mean? Like you were saying in one of your other... Like, who am I to do this? You know what I mean? To somebody. So, yeah, I don't think... Unless it was the completely wrong dish, I don't think I'd send you it. You remember me chicken, man. I ordered the lamb. Yeah, yeah. This is not lamb, homie. Like, try again. Yeah. But other than that, I can't. I can't think of anything that would cause me to do that. Uh, I think personality type plays into this. You know, there's always people that are going to be who they are, um, one end of the spectrum to another. Whether you're super entitled or you like, you know, whoever you are. Some people are very chill. I, I won't do it either. If you if I order a burger, I don't like tomatoes. You put a burger on my tomato, I'm just going to pull it off. I'm going to yeah. eat the damn burger. Yeah. I'm not very picky. I'm not going to make yeah. a big fuss out of it. Yeah. I'm just going to carry on. Right. Um, been to plenty of wine bars when I order a wine and they bring me the wrong wine. Mm. I'm going to drink it. It's, yeah. it's whatever. It and is what order, it is. Order the right one again. And I'm going to try to order the next yeah. one again, yeah. right? And you know, and so things snowball and, and one thing leads to another. But yeah, I think uh, we have our own biases and, and our own preferences so that when we go out to eat, being in the industry, it's very interesting being on that side of the spectrum and then waiting on industry folks as well, mm -hmm. um, knowing how to gauge. Some industry folks are very forgiving and they're just like that, whereas other industry folks are like, I'm in the industry, don't you know? You yeah, sh this should be know. perfect. I'm a professional. Don't I'm a know? professional. Yeah. That is my favorite saying. Yeah.
Uh, but I just remember something else that I do notice is when a menu is out of season, and I think we uh, talked about it. Um, you know, having cider braised pork belly on your menu in May or June is like you know you're either six months early or six months late, but you've got to change this. Like if you're tomatoes it, in January. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a certain place, like like if if you run off of like a changing menu or you advertise as a seasonal menu, like. You've got to change your menu at least four times a year. You know what I mean. But if you're this, if you're whatever the same place that has you know a BLT on your menu year round, like yeah, you're going to be getting tomatoes from Chile in January. I'm just not going to order them. That's fine to have them there. That's just not for me. But if you're a restaurant that claims to be seasonal, don't be serving tomatoes and raspberries in January. Because Chef Carl will notice. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I totally agree, and and I agree with all of that. I'm glad we're on the spectrum of, um, you know, less friction. Just make it easy on everybody. Maybe I just won't come back, but I'll give you another try down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we do notice. Um, but, but basically on that, you know, I'd, this can lead to a whole other episode, which hopefully there'll be more to come yeah, where please. we can take many different avenues. Um, there's a lot of things we didn't cover today um, that we will cover in the future. Um, for the most part, this is Chef Carl Krauss. And I hope everybody enjoyed and learned something. Um, I learned a lot from him. I continue to do that. Um, Every day we all should learn something new. And I'm in my lane of wine. And if we can dabble into other people's lanes, whether it be retail or culinary or mechanics, there's always something to learn out there from everybody else. So I appreciate you taking the time and and talking to the audience about what's going on in your head. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for the wine. It's great. Thank you, and uh, until next time, I hope everybody sticks around and and bears with us. Um, We'll see you on the flip side.